We're going to be continuing in the book of First Peter, and Michael's been preaching, and I have not listened to any of his messages, so if there's any repetition or I'm building off of I kind of know where, what he's been saying, because he and I have had discussions on the book of First Peter a number of times throughout life. Um, <clears throat> but a uh, couple things about Peter. One is, Peter is, this is a little deep, but Peter is sometimes referred to as a wilderness epistle. And the idea of a wilderness epistle is that uh, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were slaves. They were in bondage in a country called what? Egypt, okay? And Egypt in the Bible is kind of like a picture of this world. And before we came to know Jesus, we were people who were part of a world that God has reserved for judgment, okay? And what happened, and we were enslaved to our sin. We were making bricks for Pharaoh, like serving Satan. And that's the way the children of Israel were. They were in this bondage. And God visited them through a deliverer who was Moses, who's kind of a picture of Jesus in some ways. And through that deliverer and through the Passover lamb and the blood put on the door, they get delivered out of Egypt. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay. So they get delivered out of Egypt, and they're on their way to an earthly promised land called Canaan. But in between is this wilderness journey that they're going to travel through, and they're going to be aliens, or they're going to be strangers. It's a hostile environment. People are going to come out and attack them, the Amalekites, uh, Amalekites and um, Sion, king of Bashan, and Ammon, king of the Amorites. These guys all come out and uh, try to attack the Israelites along the way. So they're meeting all kinds of hostility, and they're going through a strange land where they don't belong. People look at him like, who are those strange weirdos? You know, they're weird people that left Egypt and they're traveling out here and they're somehow eating something that they're living off of, which is manna that God rained down from heaven. And they're drinking water that God supplied for them all the way through this wilderness journey, just as, as we as pilgrims and strangers, that's what Peter's going to be emphasizing, who have been redeemed not with perishable things, but with imperishable, with the precious blood of Jesus, okay? We're just like those Israelites who left Egypt, left our sinful past, left our slavery, left our bondage, delivered from the blood of the true Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5 says, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, Okay? And we're going through a hostile environment, don't get too comfortable in this world, on our way to our future home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Ephesians is different. It, it's not so much a wilderness epistle. It's kind of like you're already inside the, the other side of the Jordan and the promised land enjoying all the things that God has for you. But Peter's emphasis is different. We're in this hostile environment. And Peter points out that the Christian life is like about doing good and suffering evil. Anybody want to sign up for that? Did you know that when you accepted Jesus, you did not sign up for like everything's fine now the rest of your life, smooth sailing, yeah, everything's fine concerning your eternal salvation. And everything's fine concerning the question of your sins. Because Jesus took all that at the cross. You are forgiven. You are washed. You are cleansed. You are in a new standing before God. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But when it comes to day-to-day -day life, your problems might become greater than they ever were before. Because as long as the children of Israel were in Egypt... Uh, serving Pharaoh, picture of Satan, and in the whips and, you know, uh, and chains of all of that, they were not being harassed. But as soon as they tried to leave it, who comes after them? Pharaoh and all his armies 
come after them to try to drag them back into the world. And when you accept Jesus and you say, you know what? I'm no longer a part of this world. I have a heavenly calling. I'm going to follow and serve Jesus and represent him down on this earth as a, a, his representative, as his ambassador. Immediately, opposition starts, okay? Before you're a Christian, Satan doesn't bother you because he doesn't need to. He's already got you. But it's after you get saved, even then, you might seem to be kind of left alone until you actually take a stand and say, you know what? I'm leaving Egypt, I'm going to become a pilgrim and a stranger and an alien, and I'm going to walk through this hostile environment, and I'm going to represent somebody else, and I'm going to march to the drum of a different uh, drummer, and the world's going to look at me, and they're going this way, and I'm going that way. I like to say, any old dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live fish to swim upstream against the current. John Lennon wrote a song, Turn Off Your Mind and Slowly Drift Downstream, Okay. And that's kind of the course of this world. They're blinded in unbelief, drifting down uh, in, in the, after the, what the Bible calls the course of this world. But we have been delivered out of this world, and we're headed to our promised land, which is different than what the children of Israel were headed to. Theirs was an earthly thing. Our inheritance, Paul writes in Ephesians, is in heaven. Uh, Hebrews says it's an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. Okay? So that's a little bit of this theme. So if you're going to go through this world different, and as it says in James, keeping yourself unspotted or unstained by the world, that's a challenge. Okay? But the theme of my talk, can we put a title up here? How you live matters, real biblical evangelism. It's different than what you think. People are, oh, I'm going to take this little course on evangelism. I'm going to learn, you know, five ways to witness to people. You know, how to approach them and how to do this and how to do that. We're going to look at what real biblical evangelism is. All right? Because the book of 1 Peter is about evangelism in a hostile environment. I will give you an example. 1 Peter 3. He says, you know, if you're a wife and your husband is an unbeliever, the way that you're going to win him is not by your words, but by your gentle and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of the Lord of great price. Okay? That's not written to Christians, uh, not written regarding how to live in a Christian household, although it's probably good. The main context of that is how does a woman in Roman society, where a woman would never dare step outside of her husband's religion, okay, suddenly come home one day and say to her husband, who's kind of been the boss of the house and told her what to do and what not to do, well, by the way, I've rejected your lifestyle, and I'm now a believer, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. There would be instant hostility and warfare. And so Peter spends about eight or nine verses talking about how, an un, how a believing wife in that situation would lead her believing husband to the Lord not with words, but by her godly behavior, okay? That's just one example out of Peter of what he's going to be showing over and over again of how do we as Christians in the middle of a hostile environment where we're walking through a university and there's people espousing all kinds of crazy ideas that you know, 20 years ago would have seemed insane to people, but now all of a sudden it's like this is the way that you all have to think. It's group think. We're very tolerant unless you don't think like us. We just believe in tolerance. But if you dare don't think like us, we don't have any tolerance for you. How do we be a testimony? How do we be an example in the middle of all that? 
How do we be an example in a home where maybe your parents are not Christians and you are? That's what 1 Peter is all about, evangelism in a hostile environment. As we're going through this wilderness as pilgrims and strangers, and we got Amalekites and Hittites and Amorites and Jebusites and electric lights and mosquito bites all coming after us, how do we be a witness in the middle of that? All right? So we're going to look at it. Um, Who's got a Bible here? I see some Bibles. All the front row people, isn't that interesting how Bibles and the back row people don't? That's just like, oh, there's one back there. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you to do something. Just stand up right now, and we're going to read from the Word of God. This is 1 Peter. If you've got a Bible, you can turn, or you got it on the phone. And if you don't, just pretend you do, okay? Just put your hands like this and, and listen carefully to these words. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that's what we're walking in the middle of, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as a supreme, the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. That's a key verse. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to Everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Nero was in power, by the way, who was a very ruthless tyrant of an emperor. And yet, Peter writes, honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your own masters. And uh, we'll talk briefly about that in a minute. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this, this is commendable before God. To this, you, that's everybody in this room, including me, to this, you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, a little different than we, okay? He didn't do anything wrong. He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, bless your word. Teach us tonight, we pray. I believe that many or most in this room want to follow you. They want to do the right thing. But we are in a hostile environment. There's a lot of forces against us. So give us help from your word. Feed us, grow us, strengthen us, encourage us who are believers. And anyone here who is not, Lord, just draw them tonight through the power of your Holy Spirit to the cross that they would see the substitutionary death of Jesus, what he did for them in suffering in their place so that they could receive eternal life by just coming in their sin and accepting your righteousness and realizing that Jesus took their sin in his place, in, in their place. So thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. Bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. I'm going to put a first point up here. Every Christian 
should have a deep concern for the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's a testimony? Yes. The story of someone's life. And I'm going to carry it a little bit farther, especially kind of in a Christian sense, but in a biblical sense. Your testimony as a Christian is how you represent Jesus. It's your character. It's how you represent his name. Okay? And so if I were going to give you the testimony of Jesus, it would be the whole character and everything about his person and who he is, his his sinlessness, his omnipotence, that's a word for um, all-powerful, his omniscience, all-knowing, all the character of Christ, his testimony represented in the life of a Christian. Do we want to see the name of Jesus drugged through the mud, or do we want to see it lifted up and exalted? If you're a true Christian, you should care about that. You should actually have a deep concern whether those around you who also profess to be believers are dragging Jesus' name through the mud so that people who are sort of on the verge of saying, maybe I should take the plunge and become a Christian myself, are saying, well, not anymore. Someone said, the biggest hindrance to people coming to Christ are Christians. Okay? So we ought to all care about how people see Jesus represented We should care about whether his name and his character is lifted up and exalted in the lives of other Christians as well as especially in our own walk and our own testimony, all right? Every Christian should be deeply concerned because actually we're going to see that upon that hinges the evangelistic outreach and um, force of the Christian life and testimony, far more than anything you say, okay? It's important to be able to know how to lead somebody to Jesus. It's important to know how to share the gospel and what it is and be ready to give an answer to everyone, which he's gonna say later in this book. But more important about than that is how you live and how you, as Titus talks about, adorn the gospel of Jesus, how you represent that so that, as Titus says, the word of God is not maligned. People don't speak evil of the Bible because what they see Christians, how Christians live. And I'm afraid that we give people ammunition. They're looking for it. They're looking to watch you trip and slip so they can say, aha, I knew Christianity was phony. And I don't have to believe that. I guess I can just go to hell because if that's how that person lives, there's probably no truth to it anyway. We ought to care deeply because what we do matters and it affects other people. How you live matters, all right? So he starts off and he says, dear friends, I urge you. It's one of those strongest words in the Bible. I plead with you. I exhort you. I beg of you. I urge you. It's pretty strong. Okay, that's, you understood the Greek tone here. He says, as foreigners, okay, and exiles. What's an exile? If you went back to the root of that mean word, it's kind of a word that means one who lives alongside, literally in the Greek, alongside the house. In other words, here's a house, but this person doesn't really in the house, they're alongside the house. And as Christians, We don't really live, we're not of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, but we're alongside the world, and they're looking and watching. They're saying they're not a part of our house, but they're alongside us, so we're gonna see how they really live, all right? Do they live like they're just right at home here? They do everything that we do? They just like party hardy, and they do all this stuff that they're trying to find, all the stuff that we're doing to try to find happiness and satisfaction, they soup to all that too because somehow they think that they'll be accepted if they do that. That's what Satan wants, okay? But instead, we do march to the beat of a different drummer. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about rules and regulations. I'm talking about a real heartfelt devotion that every Christian should have to say, I want to represent Christ well, okay? If you really know Jesus 
I know there's something in your heart that that resonates to. That down underneath, no matter how you've been living the last few months or whatever, something in your heart saying, that's right. I really should care and I should be devoted into wanting to represent Jesus well. And I do slip into these times where I just kind of like decide I'm going to compromise and sort of be a, a wishy-washy, uh, lukewarm Christian and be like the world so they'll like me and I won't have to experience any hostility. But again, he says in this very chapter, this is what you're called to. You're actually called to where when you do good things, people treat you badly. How would you like that? He says, what, what good is it if when you deserve something bad, you get in trouble for it? But when you didn't deserve it and people still revile you and treat you horribly, when you actually did the right thing and you did something good, that's acceptable to God. That's pleasing to God. Okay? So let's keep on going. I urge you as foreigners and exiles, those who are alongside where they're watching, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And the word for warfare there is like a continual war. It's not like you have one battle in your Christian life and it goes away. But certain sinful desires, if you keep giving into them, are gonna be like a war against your testimony to live for Jesus. And I think there's a reason why verse 11 in this section comes before verse 12. Because you can't really live good lives among the pagans if you don't take care of what's on the inside, as we're going to see in a moment, okay? So every Christian should care deeply about the testimony of Jesus. <coughs> and I want to say something about that testimony one more time. In the Old Testament, there was something that represented the testimony of God. Does anybody have a clue what that might be? It's even called the something of the testimony, in the Bible, numerous times. What? The Ark of the Testimony. The children of Israel, as they're going through this wilderness, they're carrying this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. It's also called that. And on top is this mercy seat, and the cherubims are looking down, and the priest would sprinkle the blood, if you remember that. But the Ark was like this big box, and it had these two staves that they would stick through, and they would carry it. And it represented God's testimony, God's presence. And one day, um, during the days of Samuel, Eli, the priest, his son said, ah, we're getting whipped by the Philistines. Let's take the ark out there. And the ark got captured. It got stolen by the enemy. They thought, well, let's treat this like a rabbit's foot. As long as I carry my Bible around with me, even if I never open it, it'll be good luck. We'll just carry the ark out there, even though we're not living it. And somehow that'll help us win. And the ark got carried away, and this weird name, they, they, call, they called it the Ichabod. That's a weird name. Which means, or they named one of the sons that was born on that same day of Eli's grandson, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. I would say that sometimes in the church, the glory departs when, so to speak, the ark, the testimony, is in the hands of those who don't care about God because those who did were not faithful with it. Is that too deep for you guys? You, you with me? So another time the children of Israel saw the Philistines when the ark was captured, put it on a cart, and they, they had these oxen who had calves in a stall. Now, normally a cow will never leave its calf. But they said, we'll see whether there's really a God. So they put the ark on a new cart, and they had these two cows pulling it, and the cows left their calf. They left their calves in the barn, and supernaturally, the cows went all the way to the children of Israel and carried the ark there. And the, the people thought, that's pretty cool. The Philistines put the ark on a cart. We should try that. Isn't it weird how Christians will look at the world and say, that's how they do it. We should do it that way. No, no, it should be the other way around. 
we, we should have a biblical standard for what we do. So they, they uh, get the ark, they put it on this cart, and the oxen stumble, they hit a bump, and the ark starts to fall off, and there's this guy in the Old Testament named Uzzah. He reaches out to steady the ark, like it's up to him to straighten it all out, and he gets struck dead. So this ark is carried to this guy's house named Obed-Edom, and it's there for quite a long time, and the Bible says God blessed the house of Obed-Edom. You should read this stuff. The Old Testament's like full of these amazing stories, okay? But the point is, then they finally came and got it, and you know how they brought it out of there? On the shoulders of men, because God did not intend for his testimony to be carried by newfangled contraptions and gimmicks and methodology that's like the world. He designed his testimony to be carried through this world on the shoulders of people. Amen? So we're representing that testimony. So that's how they carried that thing that symbolized the presence of God. Let's go to the next point here real quick. The most powerful tool of evangelism is a godly life. So after he says, abstain from the things that are on the outside, he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Who are the pagans? Unbelievers. You as a Christian, I as a Christian, should live such good lives among unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, like they're looking to accuse you. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So these people are part of Satan's crowd. So, oh, if they just trip, I'll feel better about my sinful life and my rejection of God. Oh, look, they did it. She went to a party and she got too drunk. Someone else had to drive her home. Oh, I guess I'm okay. I don't need Jesus, because she claims she has Jesus, and she gets drunk, so I guess I'm, I'm all right. I mean, that guy says he's a Christian, but, you know, he's sleeping around with everybody, but, you know, I guess I'm okay. I don't need to be a Christian, because he's just like me. He doesn't look any different than, I don't see anything godly in his life. He just gives in when the battle comes and the war's there. He just gives in to the temptation. He doesn't stand up and say, excuse me, please, but I'm marching to the beat of a different drummer. I care about the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to lift him up in this world instead of just living for the moment and letting whatever happens happen and go through life purposeless, willy-nilly with just whatever happens. I want to be like the guy in the Old Testament, Joshua, who says, as for you choose this day who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, okay? Is there anybody here that's going to say that tonight? As for me, I really want to serve Jesus. I don't care what everybody else does. I want to see his name lifted up. I don't want to drag it through the mud. I want to help other Christians who are dragging it through the mud so they don't drag it through the mud because I don't want the pagans who are watching to say, aha, I don't have to believe in Jesus. Their Christianity is any different than my life. They claim to be strangers and pilgrims, but they're not. They're just like me. They're not aliens. They're not alongside the house. They're in the house. Okay, let's go on. So he says that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. John, the, John Wesley said this. He said, do all the good you can to as many people as you can, as much as you can, in every way you can, as long as ever you can. That's the motto of a Christian. Godliness is very similar to goodliness. And if the best way you can live a godly life, you can't. Did you know that? Here's how you live a godly life. You just die to self and let Jesus live out through you. And the more you do that, the more godly your life will be. The more impactful you will be, the more joyful you will be, the more excited you're gonna be as you see what happens when you let Jesus live out. And you're gonna be doing good, but you'll also probably get some false accusations. People will be looking for you to trip. They watch Daniel to see, is he gonna pray like he did before? King's got a new law. Oh man, he did it again. He prayed like he did other times, three times a day, toward Jerusalem. They were waiting for him to trip. Things didn't look very good for Daniel for a while, but God turned the tables as he always does. So, 
So he says, uh, live such good lives among the pagans that though they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they, they will glorify God on the day that he visits you. What does he mean by that? There's a day when God visits people. I'll give you a biblical example. Stephen was the first martyr. And he stood up and he preached a message. And his face was shining like an angel. The Shekinah glory of God was just like coming out of this guy. He's like filled with the spirit. And he's just proclaiming a message fiercely to the Jews who had crucified their Messiah to tell him, it's Jesus, even though he never mentions the name of Jesus in the whole sermon till the very end, when he looks up and says, I see Jesus, okay? But they knew who he was talking about. And they gnashed their teeth, and they ran at him, and they threw stones at him. And there was a guy standing nearby named the Apostle Paul, but he was called Saul then, and he's holding the coats of the guys throwing the rocks. Had Stephen done anything bad? No. He'd only lovingly told them the truth. But he's a Christian who's doing good and suffering evil. He gets stoned for it. And Paul is this guy like, yeah, I'm holding the coats. I'm not throwing the rocks, but this is what he deserves. And he witnessed the whole thing. And what does he hear Stephen say in the end? Stephen looks up and prays, and he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Don't put this on their account. Isn't that kind of like Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Okay. Later on, Saul one day was on his way to Jerusalem with papers, or on his way to Damascus with papers in his hands to drag Christians into prison. He hated these guys. And you know what happened? He got a visitation. He got a visit from God. And everything that he had witnessed in Stephen came back, and he actually came to know Jesus, I believe, as a result of Stephen's testimony. Because Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. He was being pricked in his conscience about this guy that he saw as, as he was holding the coats and instigating the mob to kill, turning around and just praying gracious loving things in response and praying that Jesus would not lay to their charge, uh, to their account, what they were doing. He saw the attitude of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he got visited on the Damascus road, all of that came back to him and he came to know Jesus. And when you live a godly life in the middle of hostility and opposition and hatred and rejection, and in the face of that, instead of turning around and saying, well, I don't deserve this, you got the same problem. Blame, you know, complain, all those things that we do when we think we're being unjustly treated. I got my rights. That's the world. That doesn't have the same impact of when you just patiently take it and move forward because you're marching to the beat of a different drummer and you're living in view of Jesus and his testimony and how would he respond and how would he love and how would he react and how did he react when he went to the cross? I mean, he never did anything wrong. He was totally innocent. We've got plenty of stuff we could be at fault for. But if he, the just, the only righteous one, suffered that way for the unrighteous like us, how much more we should do that? When they hurled insults at him, he didn't fire them back. But he left us an example or a pattern that we should follow in his steps. Okay? So, let's look at this. He says he'll glorify God on the day that he visits us. You're going to live a godly life in front of somebody, and one day something will happen. They'll get in a car accident. Somebody will die. Something will happen, and God will visit them. And he will use your attitude where you did not respond in kind in a way that your flesh would like to. Samara's here somewhere, right? Where's Samara? she gone in the back? What's that? She went home. Okay. Well, Marty's here. Okay. Thank you, Marty. 
So if, if Marty punches me in the nose, I'm going to be honest with you. The first thing I want to do to Marty is punch him right back. Amen? Amen. I mean, he deserves it, right? I mean, even if I did say something bad about the girl sitting next to him, it's no right for him to turn around and smack me in the nose, the jerk. I'll get five other people to come and tell, tell them all how bad Marty is and get them on my side, and we'll get all riled up, and we'll just, you know, create a party of back and forth because I have my rights. But that's not what we're called. We're called that when somebody unjustly, what if Marty walks up and punches me in the nose for no reason? Actually, that's a lot more godly when I don't punch him back than when I actually did something to him and I deserved it, and then, you know, he punches me. He says, well, what good is that? But when somebody treats you in a way you don't deserve, that's what they did to Jesus. Amen? You don't hear this stuff in church all the time, but it's in the Bible, okay? We got to preach it. So we, with this impeccable life, this day of visitation, that's the most powerful tool of evangelism is when you respond back in a godly manner. Let's keep going. What's the next one up there? Whitney, you can put it up there. A godly life begins on the inside. That goes back to verse 11. I'm not going to spend time because I already did. When you have this stuff warring against your flesh and you, you want, have these sinful lusts and desires that you want to do, and he says, abstain from them. Don't give them a place. Don't do any of those things. When things are right on the inside, then you can respond in a godly way on the outside. Like I said, verse 11 comes before verse 12. So instead, verse 13, um, and uh, <clears throat> let's look at that. Next one. Citizens of heaven should be model citizens down here. You don't say, well, I'm saved. I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't have to follow the rules anymore. That's what these slaves were doing. The Roman Empire, most people, the majority, like 90% of the people actually were slaves. You were some kind of an indentured servant or in some kind of slavery unless you had the freedom of a Roman citizen. And so they said, ha, ah, I don't have to keep the rules anymore. I'm living in a, you know, if I said to you, okay, I'm a citizen of heaven, so I don't have to pay my taxes. All right? I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't have to obey the speed limit. I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't need to obey any of the rules because I don't agree with some of them anyway. That's not what he says. If you're truly a citizen of heaven, you should be all the more living in such a way that the authorities of this world can't look at you. We are talking about the pagans a minute ago. Now we're talking about the powers that be. They should look at you and see, oh, he paid his taxes. He says he's a Christian. How did Tim do this year? Oh, he paid his taxes. He didn't try to cheat. He didn't try to lie on that. He actually drives the speed limit. I got a text from a thriver one time, said, I saw you speeding. <laughs> it did. Like, whew. you know. Um, I can't be a testimony to the world. If, if, you know, my next door neighbor, I witnessed to him, then I cut him off on the, the thing and flip him off because he did something. Like, oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm a Christian. Would you like to go to church with me on Sunday? I think you're the guy that flipped me off. I think you're the guy cut in front of me. You drive like an idiot. If you're a Christian, that's the last thing I'd ever want to be. But instead, they're looking at you to find some fault, and they can't find it. And so he says, submit yourself to all these different ordinances. Obey the law. The emperor, who's the supreme authority. Verse 15, for it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Let me, let me say a little word on that verse, verse 15, where he says, by doing good, you silence. It's a Greek word that means to put a muzzle on. You muzzle it's like you put duct tape on these critics' mouths because of the way that you live. By you, you put to silence, you must put a muzzle on the critics, okay, who are con continually looking to find fault. But it says, on ignorant and foolish men. In the Greek, that word ignorant is the idea of someone who is willfully ignorant. 
In other words, you could show them all the evidence of creation and why evolution is totally debunked, and they don't care. I go, I choose to believe in evolution, because if, if it's not true, I might have to believe the Bible, so I'm going to just willfully stand with my opinion. I'm going to take this stand that is against Scripture, but I'm going to willfully do it, even though you show me that it might be wrong to rip babies out of a mother's womb before they're born or kill them afterwards. I'm going to stand by my opinion because this is what I believe. They choose to be ignorant, willfully ignorant, okay? And, uh, and foolish uh, people, foolish men. You, you silence foolish people by how you live. And then he says, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. That's all of society. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. We already said Nero's in power. I know I'm going to step on toes here, but I'm going to, say, I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> it's not the Christian's job to bash the president of the United States. Okay? When you see Christians put their little political views up on Facebook, that is not <clears throat> the way to be a witness. Because you just alienated half the people. I, I got a guy like, he, he puts this thing up on Facebook. He's a Christian, too. He puts this thing up on Facebook, just totally bashing the president. Oh, he's corrupt. He's terrible. I said to him, you know, I've heard equally arguments on the, about the people on the other side. Oh, he's a, he's a moral person. I said, well, you know, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat here tonight, but I said, JFK, Franklin Roosevelt, Bill Clinton, all had well-documented affairs while they were in office. As far as I know, the president that's here hasn't done that. I mean, he's, he's had a pretty sinful life and had some affairs before that, but not while he was in office. So equal cases could be made of how terrible these poor people are because the best of men are men at best, and they're all corrupt, okay? I don't, I don't know hardly. It's pretty hard to be in politics and not get your hands dirty. Seriously. So they're all pretty corrupt, so I didn't vote for the person, I voted for the policies. But it's not my job when Obama was in office, to be honest with you, I didn't vote for him, but I never bashed him. Okay? And I don't agree with everything Trump does, but I don't bash him. I pray for him. I'm called in the Bible to actually honor those in authority. God's put him in a position that he put him there. And who am I to stand in the way of that? I pray for them. I don't hide my head in the sand to their sin and think they're all sanctimonious saints. You know what the Bible says? God said this, I will overturn and overturn and overturn until he comes whose right it is to rule. Who's that? Jesus. Did you know that they voted my man out 2,000 years ago? And they chose Barabbas instead, who was a, a robber and an insurrectionist. And Barabbas has been loose ever since. He's still loose on the streets of America today. Lots of hostility and insurrection. One day, the one who's right it is to rule will come. In the meantime, as a believer, it's not my job to get on Facebook and say everything I can bad about who is in office. I pray for them. I recognize their faults if they have them, but I don't blab them and blast them. I say, okay, God, you can work in spite of that person. I'll vote for who I think I should because as a citizen of heaven, I ought to be a good citizen down here. But I'm called to honor all men. I'm called to love the family of God. I'm called to fear God. If you got the third one right, you'll get all the rest of them right. And I'm actually called to honor the emperor, or in our case, it would be the president. Do you see a lot of that today? I've never been in, a, in my whole lifetime seen so much hostility. Oh, hate that president. He's terrible. Oh, you guys are crazy. You should listen to Fox News. Oh, you should listen to MSNBC. Crazy. That's not my battle. God's going to allow whoever he wants, and he uses the worst people sometimes to accomplish his purposes. My job is to represent Jesus and to represent him well. And in the middle of hostility, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse me of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day that he visits us, that I, 
I do good in such a way that I put a muzzle on people who are willingly ignorant and don't want to know the truth and are looking to find fault and want to spout off their yappers about what they think is wrong or right in society. But when they look at your life, they ought to see someone who lives like Jesus, who represents Jesus, who exalts Jesus, who cares about the name and the testimony of Jesus Christ way more than any certain political candidate or even themselves, okay? Because that's what we're called to. And then, uh, <clears throat> so verse, uh, the, let's put the next one up there. Show proper respect to everyone. That's the verse that I just quoted. Uh, love the family of believers. Fear God. Get the third one right, and all the rest of them will be okay. Honor the emperor, First Peter 2.17. Nero was in power, worse than any person who's ever been a president of the United States, for sure. Okay, he goes on and he says, for it is commendable if someone bears up, verse 19, uh, under the pain of unjust suffering. Um, unjust suffering. I'm going to stop there. Could you put the, the next one up, Whitney? It's how you handle unjust treatment that has the greatest impact. And so that's why he says, for it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer doing good and endure it, this is commendable to God. To this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Okay, um, so I want to be careful when I'm treated wrong that I still respond right because that has a way bigger impact than if I deserved it. You say something bad about me in front of my face and I turn around and say something nice to you, that has an impact. Way more than if you just say something bad about me and I just sort of humbly slink off and take it. But when I, when, I, when I respond like Jesus, because it says here, go, go ahead and put the next one up, because we had to move here along. We got only one more after this one. In going to the cross, Jesus not only gave us salvation, but left us an example, okay? That word example is a word that we get our word pattern from. My wife went to the store the other day. I'm looking through the computer and I see on my bank statement that she spent $46 at Joanne Fabrics. $46, like what? This is a tight month, man. I didn't know it was a tight month, but it is. You know, because anyway, I love my wife. I do. So she, I can't help but be gracious to her. But why she do that? Because she's got some stuff she wants to sew, and she's got a pattern. Part of that money went for, she told me, a pattern. And what is a pattern? It's this thing where you cut out everything to match it. And the idea is when Jesus came down here, he left us a pattern, an example. He actually made, it's kind of the idea too that when he walked through here, he actually made tracks that we can put our feet in and walk in the same exact space where he walked, so to speak. You're walking in Jesus' steps. You're following his pattern, okay? So you want, if you're a Christian, you want to be like Jesus, right? You should. And so what, what is it? What was the pattern? He tells you what, what it gives you an example of what it was. He, he left you an example that you should follow in his steps, he committed no sin, didn't do anything wrong. We've all done wrong. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled insults at him, what was his pattern? What did he mark out for us to step in when they hurl insults at us? It says, he didn't retaliate. I can't fight back. Jesus fights my battles for me. This is how I fight my battles. You guys know that song. Okay. And so, when he suffered, he made no threats. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He's like, 
Didn't do it. And say, you do this, I'm going to really get after you. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just commits himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? That's God. Meekness is not weakness, right? The idea of meekness in the Bible is a person who walks through the, Jesus says, King James, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, okay? Uh, and you will find rest to your souls, okay? If, if, you, if you take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Meekness is simply committing everything to God. When you do that, you don't have to worry about it. Man, I got on the internet the other day, and I found a certain circle, a certain group of people. I couldn't get into their group, but they were slandering me. Honest, true story. Don't look for it, please. That's pretty bad. All right. Most of what they said wasn't true. Okay? It's like far out, unbelievable stuff that I'm like, my tendency was want to, hey, so-and-so, I know that you're in that circle. Have you seen what they wrote? Would you correct them, please? No. God, you can deal with that. All right? But my name was being drugged through the mud by somebody who doesn't even know me. They've never met me in their life. All right? But they're saying stuff bad. And they're in a circle of people, because in their little group, I can't get into it. But someone took screenshots, pictures of all the screen, t- and then they sent it to me to say, I think you should know about this. Now I was like ready to get riled up and go to battle. No, 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 that's not how Jesus would handle it. I got to preach on 1 Peter 2 tomorrow. <laughs> all right. So this other person, they're ready to go to war. They, they can get in that circle because they're part of that circle. And I said, don't defend me. You could go in there and tell them all this stuff's not true, and you can tell them what's true, and you can get a bit of an argument with them about it all. Don't defend me. You know, if you want to say something nice about me, you're welcome to do that, okay? But I'm not telling you to. But don't defend me. Because it's way more powerful to let God be your defender, as difficult as that is. Because by doing that, you're going to be a witness to people. So Jesus went to the cross. He didn't just accomplish redemption. He left us a pattern. He left us an example, okay? He left us a standard. He wasn't just a substitute, but he was also a standard. In the end of the book, at the end of this chapter, he becomes a shepherd. We're not going to talk about it because there's not time. But we're here to follow that pattern that when people hurl insults at us, we just respond like Jesus. We're like Stephen. Lord, lay that not to that, that sin to their charge. We're like Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, help me to love them back. Somebody says, you know what so-and-so said about you? And a person said back to him, if that's true, I'm going to do them all the good I can. This is an old story, but in World War I, there was a guy who knelt in his barracks to pray before he went to bed. And the people in his barracks didn't like him because he was praying and it made him feel kind of guilty. So they started throwing shoes at him. And the next morning they got up and in the night something amazing had happened. All their shoes had been shined. And some of those men later on came to know Jesus. Okay. We were like, oh, he threw shoes at me. I'm going to get him with them. I'm going to put his out in the mud. I'll put dog crap in him. When he puts his foot in there, it'll get all ruined. That will serve him right. Is this church? I shouldn't have said that, but anyway. That's, that's how I want to react. No, I don't render evil for evil, but instead it's good. I overcome evil, the Bible says. Do not be overcome with evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. Do all the good you can to as many people as you can, in as many ways as you can, as much as you can, as long as ever you can. Because the Christian life, we are called to do good and to suffer evil.
All right? So that's the pattern. He finishes it. I didn't put it up there. But because you're now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, not only is the earth watching the life of every Christian, and we're a witness to the pagans by how we respond, not only is the governments and society looking at every Christian, but even heaven is watching. And the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Jesus, the one who's one day as a chief shepherd going to come back and give rewards, is going to reward everyone according as his work shall be, according to Revelation. So how did I respond? I think it's a bigger deal than whether or not you had too much wine last night. Is how, how you respond when someone does something not very good to you. Especially pagans. Because that's going to be your Christian testimony. Can you be like Jesus and surrender your right to be right? Can you put your rights on hold? I mean, in our society, we all have our rights. And everybody's mad at everybody else. Society wants to pit all these people against each other. Gays against straights. Men against women. Blacks against whites. Transies against, you know, whatever. All these groups of people, we want to just break them all down and have them all fighting each other. God loves every single one, and they're dear to God. I got to love everyone. I got to, especially the family of God, I got to fear God, and I got to honor the emperor. And I go through this life in such a way that I put to silence people who are willingly ignorant. They come around eventually because God visits them someday through some trial, through something that happens to them, just like what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. Okay? And God's going to visit them. And I live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse me of doing wrong, because they're always looking to watch me trip, I need to respond the way Jesus did. And so I have to abstain. I need to be urged, like Peter was urge, urging these Christians, to abstain from things that are going to hinder my testimony, stuff that wars against the soul, and instead let Jesus live out in my life. And that, my friends, is the best form of evangelism there is. It is the most powerful biblical e evangelism. I'm thankful Michael Bautersa and a team of people from Thrive are over in Florida on a college campus trying to evangelize those people, but I submit to you that what we talked about tonight is more powerful than that. And your testimony to your neighbor and the people you go to school with and the people at Thrive and your family members and everything else is gonna be how you respond, how you walk through the middle of that. Someday if you're married to an unbeliever, do you get in big arguments with them? Do you stick verses on their mirror every morning hoping to lead them to Jesus and play Christian music full blast to the point where they don't want to come in the house anymore? Or do you live such a, a, a quiet life among them that they look at your life and decide that Christianity is real? And they see the fruit of Jesus because the Christian goes through this life like an upside-down tree. Our roots and our nourishment is in heaven, in Jesus. But the branches are down here, and people look at your fruit and my fruit, and hopefully they say, I want some of that. That's real. That's different. That's not the world. That's a person who's outside the house alongside and not in it. It's unspotted from the world. The best form of evangelism is a godly life that can only be lived when Jesus lives out of us. Got it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Uh, a lot of stuff here. We just pray that you would take and bless it and use it. Thank you that your word is truth. We may not give it out perfectly but your Holy Spirit is able to take it and make it real and good to the hearts of every person here. Thank you for sending Jesus to walk through this world as a perfect stranger and alien, one whose home, true home was with you and yet emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant and came alongside humanity 
and only, as it says in Acts, a man approved of God who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. God, may we be people who go about doing good. May we walk through this world as Jesus walked. And thank you, Jesus, that in your love and devotion to the Father and in your willingness to accept everything that man heaped upon you, you took the shame, the spitting, the whips, the scourging, the crown of thorns, and the nails and the cross in our place. And you committed yourself to the one who judges righteously. You could say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus, help us to follow your pattern. Help us to walk by a new and living way. No longer self on the throne, but you living out through us. The only way that we can live a godly life is to die to ourselves and let you live out through us. Lord, may that happen more and more and more as we walk through this world. Help us to be lights, to fulfill the purpose that you've given us. It's the only way we'll ever receive true joy, experience true joy. True joy is when we let you have your way in our lives. So bless your word tonight, we pray. We give thanks, Jesus, in your name. Amen and amen.